This morning our focus will be on the Christmas story as it comes to us in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and I want to read through verse 20, but our focus will be this morning on verses 8 through 11. But hear God's word as begins in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. There are many historical events for which we wish there were greater records so that we could know more about what happened. It would be interesting to know, for example, more about the Vikings who settled in America before the first English settlers, or to learn once and for all the reason for the disappearance of the second Roanoke colony in 1587. And this is just in the context of the history of the settlement of America. And how much more important is the coming, the history of the coming of Jesus Christ. It has been said that history is to be understood as his story. And this is, in fact, the clear teaching and perspective of Scripture. The entire history, his history of the world is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 tells us that the Lord Jesus created all things and that all things were created for him. I wonder how often we reflect upon those words, for him. This means Jesus is the goal of creation. This means that he was first in the decree of God. Nevertheless, sadly and wrongly, the significance and purpose of Jesus' coming is not always described in this way. His coming is often described as an afterthought. And the explanation goes something like this, that God created the world, including Adam and Eve, without any trace of sin or the curse, as it was God's original plan that Adam would pass a probationary test of obedience and earn eternal life for all of his descendants. That plan failed when Adam fell into sin. But God, in his mercy, we are told, came up with plan B, to send Jesus to be our Savior and to do for us what Adam could not do. And this explanation, you see, of history makes it sound like Jesus' coming was but a reaction to man's sin and that something that it was something that God came up with after the fact. 
According to this perspective, Jesus was not first in the decree of God, but somewhere down the chain. The truth is that since all things were created for Christ, all of history from the beginning to the end has been planned by God as a way to glorify himself in Jesus Christ. In that goal, nothing is an accident. As difficult as it is even to understand, even the fall of man into sin fits into this plan. This is because the goal was not for sinners to experience God's grace and to receive the glories of heaven through Adam, but rather through Jesus, his son. The truth is that Jesus and his glory was first in the decree of God. God's glory, Jesus' glory, was what God wanted and planned first and foremost. And everything that happens in this world, all of the events of history serve that end, that goal. I can imagine then someone asking, well, what about God's glory? Aren't all things to be done to God's glory? And the answer is that since Jesus is God's own son, to glorify Jesus is to glorify God. Um, Jesus is the express image of his person, Scripture says. And as the word of God, Jesus reveals God to us. He is the revelation of all that God wants us to know about him. And actually, all, that all things were created for Jesus is it's one of the greatest proofs for Jesus being divine. God would never have created all things to be centered around a mere human being. Imagine God, God um, encouraging the worship of a mere human being. Our God is a jealous God. He doesn't tolerate the worship of anything or anyone other than himself. And for God to plan the history of the world for Christ... Christ had to be God. According to the scripture, the Bible says that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As the eternal Son of God, Jesus was present at the beginning of the world as its creator. As the eternal Son of God, he is presently guiding all history to its intended end. And as the personal end, he will be present at the end of time to bring things to completion. I also point out that the word end also has the nuance or the meaning of purpose or goal. The end of something is its purpose, its goal. And as the end, with a capital E, he is the purpose and goal of creation. Yes, the end of this world as we know it is coming. And in the end, all will know that Jesus is both the head of his church, his body, and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. In the end, by God's decree, we we as God's redeemed people will share in the glory of Christ, and our response will be to praise our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. This perspective gives special meaning, you see, to the words of Luke chapter 2, verse 6. I didn't read uh, those particular words this morning, but earlier in the context, It says, and while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. That is Mary. The time came for Mary to give birth to the Lord Jesus. And the Greek there literally says the days were accomplished or the days were fulfilled. And the idea here is that the day that had been fixed according to God's eternal decree had come. Before creation, God had determined He would send Jesus to save sinners, and that day had finally come. 
And this makes the birth of Jesus the most important birth that has ever taken place in the history of the world. And yet, like with other historical events with which we are familiar, there there are details about Jesus' birth that we wish we knew. There are events that are recorded for us that don't really seem all that important. Uh, the, The record of his birth doesn't in every way give the impression that Christ's coming was great. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit has had this history of the coming of our Lord recorded exactly as he wished. And we are called to submit to his work of revelation and to study what he has given us with the understanding that this particular record of history that has been given us to us by God is communicating to us what God believes is important for us to know. And what we have in the text before us is the announcement of Jesus' birth by an angel to shepherds who are watching over their flock on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem. The angel comes at night, which suggests to us that Jesus' birth was at night. And knowing the importance of Jesus' coming, we wonder about the timing of his coming in the deserted hours of the night. And then beyond that, how is this news going to be circulated? Surely God has no intention of hiding something so important. We can imagine a prophet or prophets in the plural being raised up to begin spreading the news throughout Judea, particularly in Jerusalem. Instead, God sends an angel. In the dead of night, at first only one, but then eventually a multitude. They are sent to announce the good news of Christ, of his arrival uh, to these lonely shepherds. This is by God's design, but we wonder why. So let's consider the announcement of Jesus' birth under the following three points. First of all, the lowly recipients. Second, the angelic messenger. And third, the good news. So we begin with the lowly recipients. And our text begins in verse 8 by telling us, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. These are men about which we know next to nothing. Um, Out of curiosity, we wonder how many there were. We might wonder such things as their ages, their names. We would like to hear their testimony beyond the bare bones account that we have here in Luke. And... um, We can look forward to one day talking with them in heaven and probably getting more of the details. But we have only really one sentence of their words in verse 15, where they call upon one another to go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Uh, We wonder if these were young men, even young boys, or perhaps they were older men. We don't usually think of the shepherds of that night as boys, but then we remember David and how it was the task of the youngest son in the family, typically, to take care of the sheep. So it's possible that these shepherds were young people who, by virtue of their age, would be even less respected than shepherds who were older. But our knowledge of the culture of that day leads us to understand that these shepherds, regardless of age, were considered lowly citizens, about as low as you could get. The shepherds had little, typically, to little to no education. Many of them were illiterate. In Jesus' day, they were considered second-class citizens. They were considered, in fact, so untrustworthy that they were not allowed to hold judicial office. They were not um, admitted in court as witnesses. 
And apparently the, the regular citizens of the land didn't really want them around. That, and so laws were passed that said that shepherds could not even have their flocks throughout the land of Israel. The only place they could keep them is in the wilderness. Although there's an exception to that that I'll talk about in a moment. And this all fits with, you see, the poor reputation of shepherds. Yes, enough of them were lawless uh, to have earned a certain reputation, yet not all of them were despicable people, and yet they were stereotyped as such. But meanwhile, there were sheep that were needed. They were needed for sacrifice in the temples. And this need meant that a few shepherds were authorized to take care of sheep within the land of Israel. And so we believe that the shepherds of our text were, were such men. They were watching over their flock in the vicinity of Bethlehem as those who had been hired by the temple to care for sheep that would have been used for sacrifice. And there's evidence in the text that regardless of what the world thought of these boys or men or whatever they were, yet they were believers who by faith were children of God and heirs of the riches of eternal life. They were looking for the coming Christ. And though they probably couldn't read, though they were considered unworthy of attending the synagogue or temple services, they had heard the truth. They had heard of the seed of the woman who had bruised the head of Satan. They knew of the coming seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They knew of the Messiah who would give his life for sinners as represented in the sacrificial system that was revealed to Moses. They knew of the promise to David of a descendant who would rule forever over an eternal kingdom. See, the Old Testament saints looked with hope for the day when the Christ would come and these promises would be fulfilled. And with the state of Israel at that time, as sad as it was politically and spiritually, we can imagine these shepherds on many a night conversing with one another. We can imagine their animated conversations as these men discussed the, the current events of the day. How do we know that these men were believers? Well, first, the angel appeared to these shepherds and announced to them the good news. It would have been rather odd, would it not, if the angel had announced the coming of Christ to unbelievers, especially since the angel told these shepherds that the Christ was born unto them that very day. Think of it, Jesus was born to them or for them. The idea is that he was born with them in mind. He was born with a purpose in mind for them. To do what? Well, the angel says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The Christ was born for them in order to be their Savior. Of course, Christ wasn't born only for these shepherds. He was born, as the text says, for all the people, people of every tribe and tongue and language, all of the elect, all who would believe throughout the world. But for our purposes right now, notice that the angel included these shepherds in that number. He tells us that these men were elect believers. And second, the other evidence of the fact that they were believers is how they respond with faith to what the angel says. They are excited by what they are told and respond as only people of faith would by going to search for this child and then finding him and then telling everyone about what the angel had told them about this child. 
That's the response of faith. And that these shepherds were people of faith fits with what Mary had said in response to the Lord's grace to her, who was also a humble nobody as far as society was concerned. She spoke in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 51, of how the Lord, quote, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. You see, it's the Lord's pleasure to do powerful and earth-shattering things through people and methods that the world considers insignificant. It is, in fact, the humble and not the proud and great of the world who are allowed to see and to experience the greatness of God's kingdom plans in Christ. It is fitting, then, that the angel would appear to these simple shepherds. Consider who was left out of this announcement. We sing um, of the little town of Bethlehem that silently slept while the wondrous gift was given. People of Bethlehem that evening had no idea of Jesus' birth. That likely took place just on the outskirts of the city even today. If you go, and I've never visited there, but I've known people who have who've visited Bethlehem and will point to how there are these shallow caves, there are these overhangs in the rocks that even today are being used as corrals. They put fencing around these caves, and uh, these caves are being used as corrals for sheep. And these are at the outskirts of the city. And so no one but the shepherds witnessed the announcement by the angel that night out in the field. Certainly the mighty earthly leaders, thinking now of Caesar and Herod, they were oblivious to the good news of Jesus' birth, though they wouldn't have considered it good news anyway. When Herod comes to hear of Jesus' birth, his response is to attempt to kill him in a murderous rage because of a perceived threat to his throne. The The religious leaders, they were centered in Jerusalem, and they were looking for a mighty earthly warrior king who would deliver them from Rome as part of a reward for their personal righteousness. Even though they were experts in the scriptures and were able to tell Herod that according to prophecy, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, they were not there that evening to welcome him. The gift of salvation is for the lowly in order that it would be apparent that the Lord in granting salvation is not impartial to the important people of the world. He doesn't grant salvation on the basis of personal privilege or perceived greatness. He doesn't share the values of the world who exalt the rich and powerful. God lifts up the lowly. In salvation, he helps the helpless. And this fits with his purposes that he be exalted as a God of grace, as a God of grace who gives salvation that is completely unmerited by us. It also fits with his heart as a God who is gentle and lowly in heart, who, has su- who as such desires to help the hurting and downcast. And so Jesus says in Luke ten twenty one, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The angel came and first announced the birth to lowly shepherds who, though nothing in the eyes of the world, 
We're men of faith and recipients of God's gift of salvation in Jesus. And this good news continues to be sent to the lowly of this world in whom the Holy Spirit has prepared their hearts. He's continuing to work faith in sinners. And he's sent the good news to us. And we readily acknowledge that we are no more worthy than the shepherds to whom the coming of Christ was first announced. Yes, we may have more material wealth than them. But as believers, we like them. We don't put our hope in earthly wealth and power and prestige. Our hope is for Jesus' kingdom to come. And it's a kingdom which is our solely on the basis of Christ's power and righteousness. Meanwhile, for not meeting the criteria of the world for greatness, we are deemed fools. We are outcasts, much like the shepherds were. And we also share something else in common with the shepherds. We are sinners have no more right to eternal life than they do. All of us are poor beggars when it comes to our spiritual needs. And all we can do is throw ourselves upon God's mercy to forgive, to receive, and to bless us on the basis of Christ's death and his obedience for us. Which brings us then to the angelic messenger. It was two shepherds that God sent an angel Verses 8 and 9, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. It was so obvious that these shepherds were overcome by fear that the very first words of the angel to them were, Fear not. The angel came to bring good news of great joy, but the shepherds at first were not filled with joy. Their initial response was fear. And evidently this was not a quickly passing fear such as might happen when we're startled or shocked or surprised. We can certainly understand how that was probably a part of the situation when you're there, you know, imagine yourself one of these shepherds, you're there in the darkness of the night on that hillside and there's suddenly this appearance of this majestic heavenly spirit messenger that just suddenly appears to you there in the middle of the night, that would certainly shock you. But scripture tells us they were filled with great fear, that literally they feared a mega fear. So what was the nature of their fear? Why were they so afraid? Well, basically, it was the fear that comes upon the sinner who finds himself face to face with the glory of God. This is how the Bible itself explains the shepherd's fear. Verse 9 tells us that their fear, their fear arose not simply in connection with the appearance of the angel, but because the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and stood before them in all of his dazzling heavenly glory. The shepherds were surrounded by this radiation, we might put it, of the glory of God. Of course, the angel was not God, but the angel messenger reflected the glory of the Lord himself. Herman Huxema writes of this event this way, quote, the, the halo of glory the heavenly messenger brought with him from on high, the brilliant light that with him pierced the darkness of the night in the fields of Ephrata was a reflection of the inexpressible glory that radiates from the very face of the Lord. For this angel came from the very presence of the Lord. From heaven he hailed, where the angels always see the face of our Father who is in heaven. 
and dwelling in God's heavenly presence, the heavenly glory of the Lord was reflected in their appearance. End quote. If you think about it, the fear of the shepherds in the face of one angel tells us a whole lot about how great our God is. What a glorious God he must be if the appearance of one of his mere messengers brings such terror. Notice that in verses 9 through 12, there's only one angel here speaking to the shepherds. It's not until verse 13 that there's this multitude of heavenly hosts that appear. The glory of the Lord as it was reflected from one angel sent a wave of terror through these shepherds. Can we even begin to comprehend the glory of God? We tend to have such a casual attitude about God and his holiness. We even tend to have a very casual attitude about angels as these cute, cuddly creatures strumming their harps on clouds. But the reality is that our God is wondrous beyond anything that we can possibly know here on earth. At his presence, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord. This fear of the shepherds is something hard for us to grasp because we personally haven't witnessed such glory, but one day we will. One day at the Lord's coming, we will see him as he is. And at that time, the hearts of men will be filled with fear and awe and wonder. Why? Because the response of sinful men can only be to melt in fear when suddenly they are brought face to face with the glory of the Holy One. Fear is always the response of man to God's presence. Think of fallen Adam as he hid from his holy God when he heard God walking in the garden. At Mount Sinai, when the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And sometime later, Moses asked for God to show him his glory and God told him, you cannot see my face and live. It was a regular thing for Moses' face to shine when he came out of the temple after having met with God and his face shone with but a faint reflection. Think of it, it's just a reflection of the glory of the Lord. And yet it was enough to make the Israelites afraid to come near Moses. Isaiah records the vision of seeing the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. He saw and heard seraphim crying out in praise. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response to this vision of the glorified Christ was, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's always the response the sinner to the glorious presence of the Lord to feel shame, to feel undone, to feel fear. Hooks must state the matter exactly right when he said, the glory of the Lord always judges us. We are only creatures, and uh, we would realize how small we really are if we were to find ourselves in the presence of God. And not only that, but we are creatures who have sinned. And the result is that if God's glory merely shines around us, It's enough for us to see ourselves by way of contrast as utterly corrupt and vile, worthy of condemnation. God's glory exposes our weakness and our failure. 
And in the light of his glory, we see what we should be but are not and what we are and ought not to be. We know our God is holy and we are not. The pattern is clear when sinful man is exposed to the glory of the Lord. It causes him to know his sinfulness and that he is worthy of condemnation. He is left only with thoughts of pending judgment and doom. He is left afraid. This was the fear that the shepherds experienced as the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid, it says, afraid of the judgment they knew they deserved as sinners, afraid that God in all of his holiness was going to unleash his wrath upon them. And yet the angel's message brings us to the good news. The angel's message to these shepherds who were filled with mega fear, that's the, the the terminology in the Greek there. The, these men are filled with mega fear, and the angel says to them, Fear not. Fear not. The angel would have his audience to know he didn't come to paralyze them with fear. He didn't come to condemn them. He didn't come to tell them of, of all of their sin and how they were condemned unto eternal death. He came to bring them joy. And the reason they need not fear is that the angel has good news for them. Literally, the angel explains, for behold, I evangelize you mega joy, or I bring you good news of mega or great joy. He's talking about good news that will fill them with joy beyond anything else that they have ever experienced before. And the good news is not simply about what they can do to find joy. He didn't say, now just do good works. And you will find joy or even repent and believe, and then you will be given joy. No, the good news is what God has done. The good news is the birth of a person, the very Son of God who took on human flesh. The good news is Jesus. What is the good news? As the angel puts it, he says to the shepherds why. He explains to them why they have reason for mega joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news concerns, notice, a Savior. And this idea of the coming of a Savior, it's really found throughout the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, Zechariah prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In Luke chapter 1, verse 47, Mary testified, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel commanded Joseph to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is our Savior. So how is he these things? What does he save us from? How does he do it? Well, he came to save us from our sins. Our sins deserve the wrath of God. Because of sin, we deserve the death of eternal separation from God in hell. And Jesus is our deliverer from bondage to this death sentence. The method of our deliverance is redemption. He paid the price necessary to deliver us from bondage to sin and death. The price was the atoning death of, uh, of the Lord Jesus on the cross. By means of his virgin birth, he was sinless and thus able to also earn the rewards of the law for us. And when he rose from the dead, it was proven that he had saved us from our sins. 
And the words here, for us, are a key part of our salvation. He died for us. He obeyed the law for us. He died and rose again for us. The angel has all of this in view when he says Jesus was born unto us or for us. His coming was all about him coming as our substitute, as our representative, to take our place before the law of God and earn eternal life for us. Jesus is also identified by the angel as Christ the Lord. As Christ, he is the anointed one of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the prophet, priest, and king that God himself appointed for us. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament offices and provides all that we need for a right relationship with God. And as Lord, he is the master. He is the supreme ruler of all things. Remember, again, all things were created by him and for him. All things are to serve his glory. He is worthy of your allegiance and your worship and your obedience. And this good news is cause for great joy. Joy in scripture is spiritual gladness of heart. It's not the fleeting happiness of the world over material things. It's not the the earth's happiness over earthly prosperity and peace. It's not even the joy of family gatherings and opening gifts, except to the to the degree that we engage in these things in thankfulness to God, who is the giver of all good gifts. But let us not lose sight of the fact that without our Savior Jesus being born unto us, any enjoyment of the things of this earth will end with our deaths. Jesus has given us a true and lasting joy, the joy of being delivered from sin, and restored to fellowship with God. The joy of knowing that God loves us, loved us enough to send his only son to pay the penalty of sin for us. He loves us to the degree that he is working all things together for our good. There's the joy of knowing that the curse of death has been lifted, that death is now but the entrance into the glories of eternal life with God. We have the hope of eternal life, One day we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid because by faith we know Jesus as our Savior from sin. We know and we trust that he has done all that is necessary for our sins to be forgiven. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the coming of Christ. We thank you for this announcement to the poor shepherds that tells us that his coming was for the poor and lowly of this world. Father, we acknowledge that we don't deserve the coming of Christ. We do not deserve his saving work. We acknowledge that his work is for those who know themselves to be helpless spiritually. And uh, Father, we this morning come to you acknowledging that apart from Christ, we have no hope. And Father, we thank you for the fact that even though you are a holy God, that at your presence there is this natural reaction of fear because we are sinners, yet you tell us to fear not. You have provided a Savior. You have provided Christ the Lord. You have provided this one that you promised would bring us into fellowship with you. Father, may we take hold of who Christ is by faith that one day we will stand before him and we will not fear 
for we will know what he has done, that he has taken upon himself all the wrath, all of those things that are at the, at the heart of that fear. He has taken all that upon himself for us. Thank you for Jesus, who was born unto us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.